All right, so as you guys are getting situated, we are now in church number two out of seven. The first chapter we covered and kind of the first sermon we covered was about the person who's writing these letters. I think a lot of times we get kind of, we get, we're like, oh, John wrote Revelation, so John's the one kind of giving these words and kind of exhorting these churches and, and doing all of that. But chapter one really opened up for us the reality of who's speaking to these churches and let alone who the whole book of Revelation is about. Because the reality is, is we always just say, oh, turn to Revelation, and we kind of stop there, right? I think a lot of us are just like, oh, yeah, that's the last book of the Bible. That's the title. That's all we need. We don't need to know more. But really, when we, when we dive into the title, it's actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. And everyone always looks at this book as like apocalyptic literature and this, this end-time prophecy. And, you know, we made the joke before, right? You, all of a sudden, you become the guy with the red yarn, and you're connecting pictures to news articles. And, and all of a sudden, the lotus are helicopters, and we're all going to die, right? Like, and that's how we see the book but the reality is, is, is the word revelation in, in its original context, is this, it's this revealing or this unveiling. And so when we read the full title, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So when we read the book, we need to understand and remember that all of it is speaking about, speaking for, and speaking to Jesus Christ. And so when we take him out of the scenario and we just go straight end times and go crazy and the dragons Russia, we lose sight of the whole exhortation and hope that this book can bring us. And so that's what my goal is, is even with these going through just the seven letters to the churches, is, is bringing him back to the center of the book, which is really what we should do with all of Scripture. It's either talking about, pointing to Jesus. And so if you guys have read about this church before, or if you've, you've read through this Scripture before, you know that the main theme for this church is its persecution and its suffering. And if you have one of our sermon cards that we have back there, you'd see it's the church of suffering, and that's what they go through. Um, but I think we've, we all have experienced suffering, and especially, I think, for a lot of us, after we got saved, we kind of were curious as to why suffering was the way it was and why it was happening the way it did. And sometimes for us, it happened in the church. And we have now the 21st century great coined term of church hurt, right? We've all heard the term. We've all probably some way experienced it, um, and, and we've had to walk through it, or we might have caused it. Um, but I think we need to make one thing very clear first and foremost, which is, which is real suffering, and as I put it, false suffering. Because it's something that's very blurred in culture today. You know, it's almost like the boy who cried wolf. That's the theme of, of suffering and persecution, especially here in America and especially in our politics and in our churches. But real suffering, John actually gave us in the opening of the book, right? John, John opened it up and he goes, um, who te- who, you know, I've, I've testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, whatever I saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud these words and these prophecies but then right before that, he calls himself a servant, right? And then in verse 9, so he's saying, I'm a servant in the opening. And then verse 9, John goes, I'm your brother and partner in affliction, kingdom, and endurance. 
I'm on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, John was put into a prison island and was persecuted and was experienced suffering because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So real suffering, real suffering that we experience as Christians can be defined and founded on the fact of if you are standing on the word of God and if you are living for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I had this conversation with our men's group as Pastor Jeff and I are going through the Beatitudes with them and we said, you know, blessed are the ones who are persecuted for righteous sake, righteousness sake, right? And we talked about this reality of, of you know, and I, and I try to say it always with love, but it's this reality of sometimes we get persecution in life, but we label persecution when reality is just a consequence to a really dumb thing we might have done or said, and we play the victim, right? It's very easy to get out of trouble when you cry victim. And so all of a sudden now suffering for us is almost a coping mechanism to get out of things. And my favorite one, which leads to a lot of wrongly labeled church hurt, is we love to take two words that start with a C and we switch them. Right? Someone, a fellow brother or sister approaches you and, and, and brings to light something you might be doing wrong or seeing a sin that's building up in your life, and they present it to you out of love, right? Most of us would call that conviction. But a lot of times, we don't like to be confronted with things in our own lives, so we call it condemnation and we run. And so Paul lays it, or Paul, John lays it out very clear for us that you will know true suffering and you will know true persecution when you're doing it for the Lord, when it is because of the word of God and when it is because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you run your mouth on social media and say a whole bunch of dumb stuff that gets people ticked off and then you're like, oh, everyone's bullying me. No, those are consequences for you running your mouth on social media, right? And so we have, to, we have to refocus what suffering and persecution looks like. And remember to replace the definitions of conviction and condemnation. Because so often we get the two mixed up. We try to speak love and truth to somebody and they now hate us because they feel condemned. When in reality, you're just trying to convict them <laughs> through the Holy Spirit to get them back on track. And so that's what we need to kind of grapple with today and tonight as we talk about suffering. But I think there's a beautiful doctrine, like we covered, right, all those doctrines we covered in the front of the year. There's a beautiful one called the doctrine of adoption. See, if we understand the doctrine of adoption and what that means to us in Scripture and what that means to us in the relationship to Jesus Christ, suffering looks so much different. And Jesus uses this doctrine to exhort this church here in just a few seconds as we dive in. But as always, I want to give you a beautiful quote that will always describe stuff better than I can. And this is from a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor for over 30 years at Westminster Chapel in London. And he's probably one of the top, if you ever need to know doctrine and study, that he is a phenomenal teacher. Yeah, he has phenomenal books of doctrine and all that put out there. But this is what he says about adoption. He goes, it's a guarantee. If God has taken me into the family, I'm not only a child, I'm an heir. 
and nothing and no one can ever rob me of that inheritance. As I said in the beginning, this is the most consoling, comforting, and encouraging doctrine. It is, not a tra- or is it not a tragedy that it is neglected, that men and women stop at forgiveness or even sanctification and fail to realize that this is the thing that ever reminds us directly of our relationship to God and of the wonderful inheritance, the indescribable glory of which we are destined. See, we are saved into the adoption of children, not merely forgiven, not merely declared righteous, not merely with a new nature. Above, beyond, in addition to that, we are declared to be children of God, sons of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with the only begotten Son of God. Honestly, for me, I feel like I can even stop with that quote and that would be it for us tonight. If you grab what he just said, see, salvation's not just a get out of hell card. Salvation is not just a you're now spit shined and you can go do better things now card. Salvation says welcome home. Son, daughter, you have an eternal family, an eternal home in Christ Jesus. That is the full picture of your salvation. So how sweet is that truth? It is the foundation for what we are going to see now tonight. And I want you to hold to that as we dive in. So as we dive in, I want you to, if you have your Bibles or your your phones, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. So write to the angel of the church of Samaria. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. See, if we just grab that verse real quick, we remember, right, the first church got a lot of what? The first church got a lot of flack, right? Because they forgot their first, their first love. So the, this isn't Jesus going, please just remind them of their first love. Like all these churches suck. Like I just, I hate it. How do we get to this part? Well, verse 9 continues and it says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. See, Jesus is shining the truth. He's saying, I'm not doing this to remind you of something you've forgotten. I'm doing this to remind you of the sweet, sweet foundation for why you've been suffering and for why you feel so afflicted. I'm reminding you that I am the first and the last. I am the one who was dead and now is risen forevermore. See, our salvation isn't banked on a guy who just at his end of his life was like, I really actually have no idea. I'm Buddha. Hopefully you can figure it out. Right? Most of these religious figures' last words were, we don't know. And yet here stands Jesus going, I am forevermore. You can endure. You can persevere. That's why he says you are afflicted and and you are in poverty. That is the world's labels to this church. They're, they're nothing, they're scum, they're broken down, they're beaten, they're the awkward, weird people in our class. They're that annoying coworker who can't stop praying. 
You're, you're weird to us. You're annoying. We can't stand you. And God is saying through Jesus, you are rich. Why are, why are we rich when we're sons and daughters? Because he is the first and the last. He was the one who died and lived forevermore. Our, our co-heir, who makes us brothers and sisters in an eternal family, conquered the one thing we can't. And he's saying, if you have your faith in me, that makes you rich. And then we get to the second part of that verse, which can be a little confusing or weird. And that's why we love that Jesus gives us the whole word of God. Because it says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. See, Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul actually clears this up for us. In Romans 2, 28 and 29 is the whole exhortation of Paul running through all the traditions, right? The outside ritualistic things that Israel was doing that they let overcompensate the actual relationship with the one to come. They used tradition to be tangible and to be righteous and holy in front of others. He's, he, he, he takes them and says, no, those who are actually circumcised of the heart, not just of the flesh. No, see, all those things that you kept doing outwardly, the Messiah was going to bring inwardly. See, those who are truly a Jew were ones of the heart, the ones who understood the Messiah and knew that the Jesus had come. And so when he's, what he's saying to them is, is that church at the time were a lot of Messianic Jews. They were the ones who understood that Jesus was the Messiah. Now they were hated by Gentiles for being Jewish, and then they were hated by Jews for being Messianic. So they were getting persecuted from all sides. A lot like the book of James that we covered, right? The suffering they were going through, the perseverance they were going through. And so what he is saying, and I, and I say this with love, but I say this hopefully with a lot of conviction to you guys tonight, because it's not going to be loving according to the world's standards. But it's Jesus' words. As he says, I will remove your lampstand if your witness becomes anything but about Jesus. He will remove your lampstand. He is saying right here, those who are Jews and are not, and they are of the synagogue of Satan. Any, right? This, this is saying that this means there is no room in the kingdom of God for what we call in religion today, ecumenicalism. There is no room for us to say all roads lead to God. There is no room for us to say, well, I mean, if you say you know Jesus, like that's fine. He might just be a prophet to you guys, but at least you know the name Jesus. No, even to the Jews, Jesus was calling their synagogue one of Satan because they didn't understand who he was. They needed the gospel just as much as the Gentiles did. There's no room for us to get wrong the gospel because it's the gospel. It's saying that Jesus was dead and came to life. He is the first and he is the last. That is the gospel. It is Jesus alone, by grace through faith alone. Any other message, even one of works based off of the law, is satanic. 
we have no room for compromise, especially in this day and age that wants unity with everything. But as soon as you present real unity, you're a hater. You're a bigot. You're a monster. The only way for true unity is when you read the throne room image and revelation of John when he sees every tribe, nation, and tongue saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. With the lamb who was slain, not the prophet who was slain, not the, the universal Christ who you could acquire. It was the person and the work and the being of Jesus Christ alone. That, that is true unity. And that is why this church is being confirmed and exhorted for their affliction and standing firm in their poverty because they were rich on the gospel. So we go on to verse 10, and it says this. It says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, suffering is the mark of faith. So many of us today, if we could, the one thing we wish we could get rid of, whether it was for ourselves or for a loved one or for a friend or a family member, is suffering. Whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, we wish we could get rid of suffering. But when we stand true, we now understand that suffering is the mark of faith. Look at what John said again. I'm thrown onto Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would have it no other way. See, suffering is the mark for us. Jesus is telling them, look, you are about to be tested. You are going to experience affliction. Be faithful to the point of death. And he sums that up for here at the end. But I want to take you to, to this reality of, of this picture of the 10 days. Without getting too nerdy, I'm going to take you to something very applicable. But, this, but a lot of scholars take you back to the story of David. Or not David. See, I did it again. We did it in our Daniel. There we go. I said Daniel and Goliath in our old study, so it's all good. I'm staying consistent. But Daniel chapter 1, verses 11 through 16 tell us this. So Daniel said they, they just got thrown into exile. Daniel and some of the young men who showed stature and wisdom were kept apart from everybody else to be used in the king's courts. And so now they were going to be, be pampered up. It's almost like Hunger Games scenario where they're like shoving chocolate cake down their faces and then they're like, go fight with swords. And you're like, I have to wait 30 minutes. Right? Which I think that got busted on Mythbusters, but it's fine. So now Daniel, this is his narrative with, with the guards there. Daniel's is saying this. And he says, so Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, probably butchered all of those. I hear the giggles. But verse 12, it says, please test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. 
He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine that they were to drink and give them vegetables. See, right before that narrative, right before we got into that part, pretty much Daniel and them were were standing up for death. The guy was like, I'm not going to do this for you because then I'll die, and if I'm going to die, I'm taking you all with me. Like, that just ain't happening. And yet, through God's sovereignty, it led to this conversation, and it led to Daniel and those three standing apart from the rest of the group. But they were willing. He said, do with us as you please. The, the end result would have been if, if things were pretty crappy, they were just going to kill them off. See, in the midst of suffering, we have two options. And I think this, this narrative from Daniel's life shows us these two options very well. See, we stand firm in Jesus. He stood firm in the promise of the Lord. He stood firm and said, no, I know my God can, yet if not, right? The other three at the fiery furnace said, our God is greater, yet if not, if he does not save us, we still will not stand or kneel or whatever to you, king. We would rather burn in the fire for our God than kneel one second for you. And Daniel's now saying, I would rather die by your hands than conform to the image of you, king. See, you can either stand firm or you can weaken your faith and fold to society. And especially throughout COVID, we saw what happened to churches that became weak and folded to society. We've seen whole denominations split over conforming to society. See, this is why Jesus is telling the church to be faithful even unto death, just as Daniel was willing to be faithful till death. See, God blesses our faithfulness, whether it's being called home or pulling us through. Isn't that the beauty of the Christian life now? Whether we live or die, we win. Whether we suffer for years to come or we suffer till the point of death tomorrow. We have, what does he say at the end of that verse in 10? I will give you the crown of life. No matter when, you will be brought home and I will call you son or daughter. And we will spend forevermore together. That eternal reality outweighs the temporal reality of suffering. And I love the way he ends it here in verse 11, chapter 2. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. See, you love those people in society today that have no clue what they truly mean when they say, only God can judge me, right? They always use it with the, I don't care what you say about me because only God can judge me. You should be immensely terrified at that statement you just said out loud. If you don't have Jesus, you should be buckling at your knees at saying, only God can judge me. Because YOLO doesn't count. You're going to live twice. 
depends on where you want to live. See, because that second death is that final judgment. Are you going to stand and have God see his son in your place? Or are you going to stand and have him see you and your unrepented heart and your sinful nature trying to represent its own in court? Because there's only one thing that can win the court case, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not your good works. It's not that you place your faith in crystals or drugs. It's not because you went to every conference or worship night. It's because you had faith in the one who was dead and now alive forevermore. That is, that is, you will never be harmed by the second death. And as, I don't even know how God brought this scripture to my mind, but I wanted to end tonight with this, because I think this will be the best. I can give you points, which I will always, because I'm I'm a good old Southern Baptist, we'll give you three closing points. But man, Acts 7, Acts chapter 7, and the story and the testimony of Stephen pretty much setting the picture what he just did before we get into this passage is first Peter got up and gave this baller, like just the whole Testament, Jesus. And the Jews hated it. And then Stephen stood up and said, I can't handle your guys' nonsense. The law, Abraham, the promise, all these things, all of this, it points to Jesus. It points to this guy that you put on the cross. And then we entered to this. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashing their teeth at him. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57 of Acts chapter 7, it says, They yelled at the top of of their voices, they covered their ears, and together they rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. In front of the guy who wrote 75% of our New Testament, stood there and watched with a smile on his face as this young man proclaimed Christ Jesus and was beaten to death. And we could go down a whole path about Saul because that's grace. But how gracious of a God do we serve that Stephen stood up for Jesus and he fell asleep and went into glory. He was being beaten to death, a slow death. It's not one where you get shot in the head and you're out. Didn't have guns back then, I don't think. They had rocks. Boy, did they like to use those rocks. 
Not for healing, but for killing. They probably weren't crystals. Sorry. But do you see how they reacted to him standing up? Do you see now why that church in Revelation chapter 2 was so afflicted and was looked down as poor, filthy, and gross, but yet Jesus called them rich? How beautiful, how beautiful is it to know that for him, he knew he was going home. But for the people who didn't have Jesus, what was their reaction? It's about every meme of politics and social media. They started yelling, they were covering their ears, and they were just angry. That is how culture treats anybody who stands up for the word of God and they don't like it. They don't have to have the answer for the opposite. They just go blind to everything and start yelling whatever they're told. They have to deal with second death. They have to deal with final judgment. Stephen was literally being murdered. He fell asleep. Fell asleep in the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. Suffering didn't go away. He just knew Jesus was way more worth it. And I love how the faithfulness of Stephen in his own death even resembled his masters. Stephen goes, Lord, receive my spirit. Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, if we are so madly in love with Jesus, we can't help but respond the way Jesus does. When we are so enamored with being part of the family of God that we are adopted into God's family, we can't help but act like our family members. Any of you in this room who have had friends that have lasted longer than a year, you start to act like them, it, right? I had a best friend for seven years who had Tourette's, physical Tourette's, and it sucked <laughs> because you start picking up on their twitches. And me and him make fun of it now. He's fine. He'll, he'll be okay with me saying this. But it's just, that's how we are. You get so close with people that you start acting the same. You start saying the same things. How many of us in this room tonight can say that about our relationship with Jesus? How many of us tonight in the room can say, when we suffer, we respond the way Jesus responded? How many of us in this room tonight can say, when we suffer, we know Jesus is looking down and saying, you are rich? And that's where I want to end with just these three points for you guys tonight. Number one is, if you're saved, yes, there is forgiveness. It's a beautiful thing to be forgiven. But there's also eternal family. So remember to live and participate in God's family. Remember to be active and present in the family of God. Because if you just got saved to get away from hell, but you want nothing to do with this family... You have the wrong reality of what salvation is. Number two, suffering will happen. Whether you're saved or not, you're going to suffer. But with Jesus, suffering will be purposeful and temporal. 
you're going to suffer for a short little while here on earth. And then you're going to get called home. And you won't remember a single lick of it because you're going to go to that family reunion. And you get to go home to your adopted family for eternity. And number three, never suffer alone. You have the family of God, a.k.a. the church. Get plugged in. Whether it's here at Indian Rocks or another Bible-believing, teaching church, get plugged in. The only reason tonight exists is because of Sunday. We are an extension of the reality of Sunday. You want to know and have a glimpse of what heaven will look like? Go sit in a 9 or 1045 worship service and just look around. One of the best things that blesses my heart constantly is when I get to do platform pastor and I get to sit down front with most of you guys down in the front left, right? And I get to just look back. Men and women, children, babies, black, white, Asian, everyone, every tribe, nation, and tongue, not focused on anybody else, but Jesus. And then because of that, we get to come here on a Thursday night and dive even deeper as young adults together. But if you feel alone, get plugged into a church. Don't do this walk alone. Don't, just because the church might have hurt you, God didn't hurt you. And God's calling you to be a part of a family, part of his family. So as we wrap up tonight and we start going into the questions, my encouragement to you guys as this church is, as Jesus' encouragement was to this church, the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. I pray we take an examination of where we started. If you are a believer in this room tonight, if you are a Christian tonight, if you are born again, if you claim that, I want you to examine your heart and what truly sticks out when you think about the gospel that was preached to you that night you were saved. And if the first thoughts are, thank God I don't have to go to hell, have that conversation tonight. Because if it's not, thank God I'm loved. I'm loved enough by a heavenly father that I have no choice but to give my life because I want to get in that family. And that's the picture of the gospel. Not going to hell is just a benefactor of that at that point. That's not even on your radar anymore. Why? Because you're so in the reality of what it means to truly be a Christian. A little Christ. The best insult we could have ever gotten 2,000 years ago. Man, I encourage you guys as you sit around these tables tonight. Go through those questions. Simmer on the scripture. Suffering almost becomes enjoyable when you see it in the right light. And also, I want to challenge you guys. Are you being condemned? Or is someone really trying to be convicting you for a long time and you've just ignored it? 
I think there's a lot of us in this room tonight that need a challenge with that one. Is it true condemnation that you're running from or is it conviction? And if it is conviction and you're finally realizing that, talk to the people around your table. Talk to Jess and I. Talk to the leaders that are here amidst this room. It's why Jess and I sit up here is to answer questions and to talk to you about what, your, what the Holy Spirit lays on your heart throughout the message. Let me pray and we'll dive into a time of discussion. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the truth that it brings to us. Thank you for the fact that in Jesus, suffering makes sense. Might not make it go away, but he makes sense of it. And God, help us to suffer correctly. Help us to walk into this life with a correct lens of what you've called us to be and what you call us to do, Lord. God, the world hates us. Why? Because it's hated you first. Lord, if we are hated for any other reason, it doesn't stack up against the fact of when we're hated for your word. Lord, help us to be more bold, to be more excited, to be more amped, more of that crazy friend who can't stop talking about Scripture. Let us be persecuted for those reasons, God. Not for the dumb mistakes we make or the sinful actions that we can't give up. And Lord, help us to stop running from the conviction of your Holy Spirit. God, the best thing ever is to know that we stand in front of you justified if we have Jesus. And if we stand in front of you justified and we can't stop living for you, it doesn't matter what the world says about us in your name. God, so help us to live in that witness. Help us to have a lampstand that you are so thankful that we get to hold for you, not one that you want to pull. God, work in our hearts tonight as we go through these questions, as we go through these topics. Lord, convict us. Convict us of what it means to truly suffer correctly, to suffer biblically, to suffer for your name, not for our own stupidity, God. And if there's a single person in this room tonight who, who's grappling with the reality of, did I, did I claim Jesus for the hell insurance or did I claim him because I can't help but not be in your family, Lord? Let them wrestle with that. Let them seek help through that tonight, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We pray this all in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.